and welcome back to Battleground Ukraine with me, Patrick Bishop, and Saul David. Well, the tempo of events shows no sign of slackening. Last week, we were talking about the huge gains made by Ukraine in its counteroffensive in the northeast. It seemed then that this would be a game changer, a turning point in the war when Ukraine effectively gained the upper hand. And now it looks like this is definitely the case. The proof lies not so much on the battlefield, but in Vladimir Putin's reaction to the setback. In his first address to the nation since the conflict began, he announced that he intended to throw more than 300,000 reserves into the battle. And at the same time, he made his most chilling threat yet of his readiness to use nuclear weapons. Now, last week we promised an interview with the legendary war correspondent Anthony Lloyd, but circumstances have changed. Ant is now on his way to Ukraine. And in the meantime, we thought we'd talk to another friend of the podcast who's just had eyes on the ground. That is Askel Krushelnitsky, who's been touring some of the liberated areas. I caught up with him at a motorway service station on the way back to Kiev, hence the banging and crashing in the background for which apologies. And I asked him what he's seen and what he made of it all. So, Askold, you've uh, heard the Putin speech, the first he's made to the Russian people since the war began. Uh, how did you read it? Um, I think it's an expression of the um, panic that's gripped the Kremlin following the um, rather spectacular Ukrainian advances on the battlefield over the past fortnight or so. Putin is desperate to portray the situation as not uh, veering off course. He repeatedly um, says that the special operation, which is a euphemism for the war, which he claims isn't happening, that this um, special operation is on course and everything's been successful. Uh, this is something that um, Ukrainian people in general and the government uh, mock, and they say that if this is the uh, plan of the Russians, and we like it because it's causing them disaster and Tens of thousands of them are being killed. He has, apart from saying that the plan is on course, he's announced that there are going to be referenda in um, four areas where there is a high presence of Russian occupation troops. In both the regions that constitute the Donbass, that's the Luhansk and Donetsk regions, plus two others that are partially occupied, Kherson and Zaporizhia in the south of Ukraine. The um, referenda are supposed to begin on September the 23rd. Everyone knows that the um, result preordained. Russia's um, wishes will be endorsed by massive majorities. And the Ukrainian government has said that uh, the, the uh, referenda don't make any difference just because Putin um, says that it's important. It's not important to the Ukrainians, and they will press on with their military advance. But the significance is that he will now say that these are Russian lands, and under Russian military doctrine, that means that they can use nuclear weapons to defend any attack on Russia. And this will now be counted as Russia. I think that's a very interesting point, which I don't think people have quite grasped, is that you know, that's the point, really, of the referenda, is that it expands the boundaries of Russia and therefore this nuclear threat uh, becomes much more real. In the existing doctrine, as I understand it, 
Um, it's, it has to be an existential threat to Russia, as we understand it, um, before nukes uh, come into play. But uh, if Russia's boundaries have now been expanded to include these captured areas, then, of course, that brings that threshold a lot closer. What's your own personal view about that likelihood? Do you think, I mean, he says he's not bluffing, but uh, is he? Well, Ukrainians don't think that he is likely to carry that out. But they've also said that they can't think about it too much because if they really took that threat seriously, the horror of a nuclear explosion in their country, then uh, he might succeed in, in frightening them. And they're saying, we're not frightened. It's not going to make any difference to um, the Ukrainian government or the Ukrainian army as they seek to recapture occupied territory. And from the people that I've spoken to um, since Putin made his announcement this morning, people say that they're used to um, his threats and they can't take them seriously. So they also think that it's more aimed at a Western audience to make people in NATO countries and other Western countries that support Ukraine, have given Ukraine weapons, feel threatened by the spectre of nuclear retaliation by Moscow. On the counteroffensive, we're not getting much news really from the, from the battlefield as to whether it's progressing or whether effectively that was the big push is at an end. There might be some peripheral smaller operations, but that essentially that's it. Uh, until perhaps next spring. Is that the way you see it there on the ground? The sense that I get is that um, they're flexible. They have still got some aims in Kharkiv itself. Uh, There's a river called the Oskol, and uh, the Russians have been trying to stay at least on the eastern side of that river. Ukrainians have passed over onto the eastern side but as I understand it, they were repelled, but they're um, determined to take that eastern side of the river, which would push the Russians back almost to the Russian border. They're also going further south from Kharkiv region towards other towns and cities that have become well-known in the summer, such as Kramatorsk, Slovyansk, Bakhmut, which were uh, just west of the cities that there were such fierce battles for that the Russians took Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. The Ukrainians are challenging the Russians in those areas, and the Russians are very keen to take the rest of Donetsk, and Ukrainians have been pushing back in the other region called Luhansk that constitutes Donbass, and that's humiliating for Putin because in July he claimed that they'd taken all of Luhansk and now Ukrainians are chipping away there. It seems that there's the makings of a very, very big and serious battle emerging there because both sides are trying to take as much land as possible before winter sets in. And in parts of Ukraine this week, September the 19th, there was already snow And there are predictions that it could be a harsh winter. Both sides want to get favourable positions as much as they can before the onset of winter. And then there's the southern front in the um, region of Kherson, 
where Ukrainians have also been making advances, not as spectacular as in Kharkiv, but in terms of a few kilometers in places. Kherson is one of the places where the Russians will try to hold referenda beginning this week, Friday. And the Russians are trying to portray this as a referendum that will determine the future of that whole region. It'll be difficult for them to do that if Ukraine is still in control of some of that region. And Ukrainian special forces, partisans, have been very active in the capital city of that region, Kherson. People who've been working, Ukrainians who've collaborated with the Russian occupation authorities, have been assassinated or badly wounded when their cars have been blown up. Ukrainians are going to keep pursuing that kind of action to make Kherson look unstable. When you say special forces, do you mean partisans working with special forces or special forces being inserted and carrying out these operations or a combination of the two, maybe? It's a combination of the two, so it's pretty clear. And I've spoken to people in the Ukrainian military who deal with the um, partisans. So uh, they overlap, but they are two distinct bodies of fighters. The special um, operations people are inserted for uh, specific purposes. The partisans are there, and I think that they work uh, when they see targets of opportunity. Now, you've actually just come back from the liberated areas. You went to Izium, that big fortified logistics hub, uh, which fell, it seems, without a fight. Two things, really, I'd like to hear about. One is, the, do you form any idea of the morale of the Russian troops based on, on what you heard from the people you spoke to there, the, to there, the Ukrainians who, who were basically under the occupation? And secondly, what was the nature of the occupation? We all know what the Russians are capable of doing from the atrocities in Bukha, etc. Uh, what was life like under the Russian, uh, Russian control in, in these last months? Well, uh, to answer your first question about did I get a sense of the Russian morale, there were no prisoners um, that I could see or that I met or spoke to. There were lots of people who had had some contact with the Russian occupation forces, although lots of them had tried for obvious reasons because of what they'd seen elsewhere in Ukraine, the brutality and executions, etc., said that they tried to limit the, uh, as much as they could contact between themselves and the Russian troops. But they said that morale was very low o- overall. They said that there were lots of young um, troops, Russians, and that they had complained that they thought they were being sent for training. When the war began, uh, they were surprised, and we don't know, I mean, could they have been that badly informed? Maybe they were. Um, And so Ukrainians there um, said that lots of these people had no desire to be there, and their morale was very low. There were others who were um, troops from... Ukrainian separatist areas and they seem to be maybe not efficient as soldiers because uh, it was hard for Ukrainian civilians to judge because they didn't see them fighting but they were harsher and nastier and they were given to beating people up slapping them around uh, as if to prove to the Russians 
um, in a zealot fashion that um, they really hated U- Ukrainians. They saw the Russians trying to leave as the Ukrainian advance developed and Ukrainian forces approached Izium. And they said that the Russians tried to creep out as quietly as possible, but then um, it accelerated into a rush and then a headlong um, flight. And lots of equipment, lots of tanks in pristine condition and armoured personnel carriers, other vehicles, trucks, jeeps, were left behind, abandoned, as people just ran, literally ran, um, away from the advancing Ukrainian forces. And um, tons, again, literally tons of ammunition in um, green wooden boxes or under wrappings. And I went into places that had been sort of bunks or uh, not barracks, just places where Russian soldiers slept and lived. And you could see that they left in a rush. It was full of clothes that had been abandoned, food, boots. Um, I got myself a pristine new tanker's jacket as a souvenir. There was lots of evidence that stuff had just been abandoned because the Russians were in a panic. Which presumably will be um, put to use by the Ukrainians now. The armoured vehicles have already been taken away and put to use in the fight. And I spoke to uh, Ukrainian soldiers who said that lots of this equipment was in perfectly usable condition. They couldn't understand why they didn't drive it away. And um, there were even some top range T-90 Russian tanks, which um, aren't even seen very much in the Russian lines at all. And the Ukrainians have got a couple of pristine, unused ones from Izium. The uh, Ukrainians have received so much abandoned equipment that the joke going around the Ukrainian army and civilians now is to thank Russia because Russia has become the fifth largest donor of weapons to Ukraine. Well, that was a pretty revealing uh, series of points made by Askold, who, as Patrick pointed out, was actually on the ground and has witnessed the aftermath of the fighting up in the uh, northeast of Ukraine. Uh, And one of the most interesting points he makes is that the attacks are still ongoing from the Ukrainian army. They're making some headway. They're coming up against a bit of Russian opposition, too. Uh, But all of this is uh, an intention to gain as much ground as possible before winter sets in and already snow is on the ground. He he talks about a determination to get across the Ostgil River. Uh, There's also attempts to make gains down in the south in Kherson. And clearly, uh, this is uh, the last opportunity, frankly, before winter makes it impossible to carry on with the fighting. Yeah, the um, interesting point also about the kind of, you know, morale comparison, always really a very, very important element in, in the equation. So on the Ukrainian side, shrugging off the uh, latest threat from Putin on the nuclear front uh, and contrasting that with the low morale of the Russian troops and what he could glean from his interviews and talking to people in the liberated areas. Also contrasting the demeanor of the conscripts, the Russians themselves, compared to the Ukrainian 
separatists. Uh, so the it's the separatists who are you know Ukrainian nationals by passport, I suppose, or by birth. But they're the ones who are more um, more aggressive, more uh, chauvinistic, if you like, than than the actual people on the ground. So I think that tells us something. Also, Russian conduct of of the troops doesn't seem to have changed very much from the atrocities that we were appalled to see back at the beginning of the conflict in and around Bucha, near the capital, that they still seem to be going on, perhaps not quite on the same scale, but the same pattern of torture, extrajudicial execution, murder, let's call it what it is. Uh, so they don't seem to have learned anything from the mass outpouring of outrage that that produced. I suppose the separatists' behaviour can be uh, explained, of course not justified, from the fact they've got nowhere to go. You know, if they lose, that that's it. They're high and dry. Whereas the, the Russians at least uh, have somewhere to go back to. Yeah, exactly right. But um, your point about the atrocities, Patrick. I mean, he talks about up to a thousand bodies being found. That doesn't sound to me like they're scaling down the atrocities. Um, he witnessed with his own eyes people being brought out of the graves, uh, bound, which obviously means that they were executed, uh, having been tied up beforehand and probably tortured. Uh, that no doubt will come out in the autopsies. So, you know, it's pretty grim stuff. And you, you get the feeling that wherever you go, uh, whatever bit of Ukraine is liberated, you're going to see the same thing. Now, going back to uh, lack of morale, I mean, this is evidenced, of course, by the amount of ammunition and kits that the Russians are leaving behind, including, according to Askolds, uh, even some of their top-range T-90 tanks. Now, they're not the absolute uh, last word in Russian armor. Those are the T-14s that Danit told us were probably still at the experimental stage, and they certainly didn't want to lose one of them on the battlefield. But they found these T-90 tanks in the recent fighting, uh, and, of course, that will be of great interest to NATO. The referendums... Uh, I think we haven't quite grasped what the point of these are, as I was saying when I was talking to Askold. They're so obviously fake, so why, why would you have them? And I think the, the explanation is that, uh, as Askold and I were agreed, that it's really to give some credence to the nuclear threat. By expanding what Russia considers to be Russian territory, uh, it then allows their nuclear doctrine, when they would allow nuclear weapons to be used or when they would consider the use of of nuclear weapons, unspecified whether they're strategic ones or tactical ones, uh, that boundary has been expanded because Donbass then is, in their eyes, Russian territory, a conventional attack, uh, such as the Ukrainians are making, that threatens that, threatens Russia as a whole, and therefore opens the door to a nuclear response. I mean, that's, um, I know you're more relaxed about this than the MISO, perhaps because you live in you live down in the West Country, and so um, you would be less vulnerable <laughs> to a nuclear strike than I would here sitting in Brook Green, West London. But it does, um, you know, it, this just makes me more fearful. I, I, have to, uh, I have to say that. I am less worried about uh, this than you, Patrick. I think you've got to be. This is a, a nuclear bluff. We'll talk about it more in part two. And frankly, it needs to be called, which, which by that I mean, of course, uh, the war needs to continue to be prosecuted at the same, if not at a higher level, in terms of uh, Western and NATO aid to Ukraine. Uh, and Ukraine needs to be given the opportunity to win this war on its own territory. This bluff that Putin is trying to uh, perpetrate on the West in the hope that some Western countries will break ranks uh, cannot be allowed to succeed. But we'll talk more about that 
in part two, when we'll be looking at uh, what the mobilization means, potential battlefield scenarios, and a lot more. Join us then. Welcome back. Uh, now, let's deal with the two big standouts in the Putin speech. I just want to say at the outset that he didn't look to me like a sick man. Of course, that didn't stop rumours flying around that the uh, delay in the speech, it was meant to be broadcast some 13 hours before it actually was, uh, was the result of a health scare. There were stories of coughing fits, chest pains, etc. But I fear this is all wishful thinking. It's a bit like the way that the Daily Mail looked at pictures of, of the royals um, during this recent, the recent uh, ceremonial around the Queen's death and reads all sorts of uh, incredibly fanciful things into what are quite ordinary expressions. Now, let's just go back to the, the, this big call-up. Why is he doing it? We know that he's all along, we've been saying, he is very resistant to the idea of a general mobilisation uh, because it's going to have big consequences at home. So far, he's been able to to actually insulate uh, certainly the big cities from the effects of the war or rather from too close, giving the war too much actual visibility. Of course, they're suffering from sanctions, etc. But the idea of actually saying, actually, we're at war uh, was considered to be a bridge too far. Now he's done this. Why did he do it? Well, obviously, pressure from the right. You've had these warmonger commentators constantly uh, raising the temperature the whole time. Many of them, interestingly, women like um, Margarita Simonian. She's the editor-in-chief of uh, Russia Today. But from her name, so you will recognize her as one of your own. She's an Armenian by origin. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, she may be Armenian by origin. And of course, there, as we discussed in the last episode, there is a close association between uh, Armenia and Russia because of the orthodox connection. Uh, but that certainly doesn't mean that all Armenians are supporters of what's going on in Russia at the moment. In fact, we know that a lot of Russian refuseniks, that is uh, anti-war characters, have gone to Armenia, a lot of guys in IT. And of course, people like me who haven't had a connection with Armenia proper for five or 600 years in terms of the family links are pretty horrified too. So she is a bit of an outlier in my view. But except that in Russian history, uh, some of the most extreme nationalists aren't Russian at all. Stalin, obviously, was a Georgian, but Felix Zhezinsky, the head of the Cheka secret police and the architect of the Red Terror, he was a Polish aristocrat. Uh, but these people we're dealing with currently, they're what, um, what Professor Mark Galliotti calls narrative entrepreneurs. They pick up a story they think is going to please Putin and they run with it. They're often state television commentators, uh, and they make an industry out of being more nationalist uh, than the president. Nonetheless, uh, they are a constituency he can't ignore. On the other hand, though, you've got pressures coming from apolitical or, to a lesser extent, opposition people, which just people who now see that the war actually is impacting on them. So yesterday we had demonstrations in 37 cities right across uh, Russia. I noticed that in the images, most of the demonstrators are young men. So they're people who are actually directly affected by this. They might find themselves in uniform on the front line uh, in the next few months if uh, things uh, proceed as they are. Uh, but at another level, people who've obviously got money are, are scouring the websites, uh, the flight websites, to try and see what their chances are, of get, what it would cost them to get out of the country. The answer is a hell of a lot. So you've got this panicky search for flights. None of this is good news at all for Putin, I would have thought. 
No. And what we've clearly got here is uh, the last throw of the dice, frankly, because if you think about it, the original premise uh, for this special operation was uh, we're going in there to protect our, our fellow Russians. Uh, it's not a war. It's just a, it's going to be a very quick surgical operation. As soon as you get an impact domestically, and of course, there's already been an economic impact, but this is much more serious what's going on now. To have got to the point where even partial mobilization, I think we should explain what that means. I mean, that's effectively the calling up of reservists, those with military experience. Not all uh, reservists, of course, because that would be millions of Russians, uh, but certainly people who most recently have had military experience and are of a certain age. And these are exactly the kind of characters, as you point out, Patrick, who are leaving. But we shouldn't underestimate the protests either. 1,400 arrested in these protests overnight. Uh, and it's all over Russia, including St. Petersburg and Moscow. So the consequences of the war are being are beginning to be felt on a domestic level. And yet at the same time, and another factor in the reason why he's done this mobilization, and the mobilization, uh, of course, could backfire badly on him, but its intention is to get enough troops to finish the war. We'll discuss whether that's possible in a moment. But what seems also to be happening is that he's getting diplomatic pressure, um, chiefly at the Samarkand uh, summit, which was the Shanghai Cooperation Organization grouping, which is really an economic grouping, pressure from the Chinese, also the Indians. And now we hear that the Turks uh, have also said, not only uh, must you end this war now, that's President Erdogan of Turkey, you've actually got to give back all the territorial you've, gains you've made since the beginning of the war. I mean, that is quite a statement for Erdogan, who has really been sitting on the fence through all of this to make. Yeah, I think that's very significant. And uh, I think that's probably the, where we'll be heading in the, in the next couple of months as we'll see a shift away from the battlefield and on to the diplomatic front. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. But going back to just the, the effect of the call-up, if you like, on, on the war situation, Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu announced 300,000 people would be eligible for call-up. People are saying, or commentators are saying, military experts are saying, that actually the number's probably near 100 to 150,000 realistically. Just a word on, on Shurigu. Um, he's, he's been in the firing line lately because, of course, uh, the Putin boys in the Kremlin are shifting all the blame for what's going wrong uh, onto him. It helps his critics that he's not really a soldier. He was Minister of Emergency Situations. That's combating natural disasters, fires, etc. for nearly 20 years and the military distrust him and hold him in some contempt I think for his lack of any real military credentials. He tries to combat this uh, by dressing up in fatigues and uh, trying to look as butch as he can wherever, wherever possible but uh, set against that he has been a big buddy of Putin he goes on to trips to Siberia with him and interestingly he's, he's actually his mother is from Ukraine uh, from uh, Kadivka in the Lukansk uh, Donbass area. In the old days, it was called, called Stakhanov, named after the hero of Soviet labor, Alexei Stakhanov, who was a, worked in a coal mine there. And in 1935, he dug 227 tons of coal in a single shift, allegedly. It was, I'm afraid, typical Russian BS. It was all a stunt uh, designed to show how superhuman the, uh, the Soviet proletariat was, uh, but it made it was big uh, world propaganda and it gave us a, a word uh, for, for incredibly hard work, Stakhanovite. 
But poor old Alexei hit the vodka and had his medals taken away uh, and uh, his party card taken away, so he came to a sad end. Anyway, um, these 150,000 active reservists who may be thrown into the fight, uh, they're not going to be that much use, are they? So I would have thought. No, I mean, the idea that 150,000 partially trained uh, former soldiers are going to tip the balance is nonsense. I mean, what we're clearly seeing in uh, Ukraine, uh, a point Askol made too, is this is really a technology war that the Ukrainians are winning. It, they're winning it because they're getting and adapting uh, kit and military methods from the West that are frankly um, far superior to anything the Russians have to offer. Now, the Russians are clearly terrified that more of this kit will come in. And I think that's one of the, another factor in the attempt to create, expand the buffer zone of Russia and to say that, you know, because to be fair to Ukraine, it's been quite wary about sending missiles into Russia proper. That is bits of Russia that are certainly not former Ukraine. And it's done this because it doesn't want to escalate the war. Well, what Putin's trying to do is, is say, actually, bits of former Ukraine are now Russia. And therefore, you've got to be wary about using these new long range missiles, which, you know, there's every likelihood uh, that America at some stage is going to give to Ukraine. Well, he's hoping this is going to discourage that. And of course, break the alliance more generally. Um, I can't see any really obvious signs, frankly, Patrick, that this is about to happen. I mean, what, what we had overnight are responses uh, from the Americans, the British, and a number of others at the UN. I mean, it's incredibly bad timing, frankly, on the part of the Russians that all the allied countries, the NATO, NATO countries, were about to meet at the UN, and they are all of them uh, in line with the fact that uh, they will not be blackmailed by Russia, they will continue support for Ukraine, and that Ukraine needs to win this war. That's absolutely right. Uh, It was very striking, I thought, at the UN, the way that the Europeans have now, the ones who seem to be more reticent in their support, uh, notably um, Schultz and Macron from Germany and France respectively, have now pretty much lined up their rhetoric with that of the US and the UK. Uh, Macron stating very clearly on Wednesday that the Russian aggression is 21st century imperialism and uh, calling on neutral countries, the fence sitters, to come out against Putin. I think that's something that uh, will, convi- will not convince Putin, but it, would, it may well uh, tip people who are in Moscow in positions of power in the inner circles uh, to think very hard about their own futures. A lot of their strategy was based on the idea of, of dividing uh, Western opinion, uh, playing on the weaknesses of democracy, if you like, uh, the reliance on Russian energy and so forth. None of these things have come to pass. So the by this stage, according to the Russian strategy, the West would be uh, in disarray and continental Europe, European democracies would uh, be drifting further and further away from the position of the UK and the US, but that doesn't seem to be happening at all. No, and as we've um, already pointed out, uh, China was putting pressure on Russia a a week or two ago. Well, it's come out with more response to uh, this latest announcement by Russia by urging all parties to engage in dialogue and consultation. I mean, it's sitting on the fence, of course, uh, but in no way is China going to be a reliable, either diplomatic and certainly not military ally for Russia. Now, say these uh, recruits are got into some sort of fighting shape and sent into uh, the theatre 
in the next, say, three or four months. Well, they'll be arriving in the middle of winter. It's going to be freezing. Uh, we can't really uh, gauge how ready the Russians are to receive them. The Russians are in, in place already. The military mechanisms, logistics uh, are sufficient to actually take in this new influx. Um, from what we've seen before and heard before, uh, the, the likelihood is that they're not going to be actually ready to absorb large numbers of, of new troops and train them up, etc. Equipment, they're running very low on, on 21st century equipment all round. And so probably these new guys will be coming along with stuff that's been broken out of, of old ammunition dumps and arms dumps and all the rest of it, and that, that'll probably need refurbishment. So there'll be a lot of preparation in the worst uh, conditions. So I can't see that, uh, that they're going to be ready to do anything before the spring. And when they do, it'll be an old style, you know, trying to overwhelm the Ukrainians with um, just sheer weight of numbers, something that they did uh, successfully in the Second World War. But this is a very different scenario. And it, again, it comes back to morale. The Russians aren't fighting for anything and the Ukrainians are fighting for survival. That's right. And we're, and we're getting uh, increasing amounts of information um, from former Russian soldiers, that is veteran soldiers uh, and others on communication systems like Telegram, who are clearly stating that uh, not only is morale, as we've already pointed out, very low, this is coming from the Russians themselves, but also that they don't even have basic kit in a lot of these areas. So the only way you're going to get a Russian army to fight effectively in uh, Ukraine in the coming months, these new reservists who are being pushed into the line, is if you use terror, frankly. And if they get to that point, a kind of Stalinist type uh, will shoot anyone who doesn't go forward scenario. Uh, I think the whole system will break down very quickly. That is simply not possible in a 21st century army, I would suggest. So the medium term uh, or the short to medium term outlook in a military sense on the ground in Ukraine does not look encouraging for Russia. And I see this recent announcement very much as a panic measure and a sign that uh, Russia is heading very quickly for defeat. So that brings us to the elephant in the room, Patrick, uh, the elephant that you're most worried about, the nuclear threat. Uh, is there, has there been, in your view, much of a change, really, from what is already existing Russian doctrine? No, I don't think there is any real change. Uh, going back to the statements they've made over the years, in 2014, the doctrine was defined as uh, the Russian Federation preserves the right to use nuclear weapons in response to the use of nuclear and other types of weapons of mass disruption against it or its allies. And also, this is the crucial bit, in the event of aggression against the Russian Federation involving the use of conventional weapons when the very existence of the state is under threat. Now, you know, if these Donbass referenda go the way that uh, everyone expects them to, then that will mean that the conventional war being waged there now could be interpreted as, as being an existential threat to the to the Russian state. But when they're talking about nuclear weapons, what, what are they actually uh, saying? Now, you know, of course, they're keeping it very vague. I think we can dispense with the idea that there's going to be an intercontinental ballistic missile fired at Washington or London, <laughs> or, uh, or indeed on some hugely powerful a nuclear device fired at Ukraine itself for simple self-preservation reasons in the latter case, uh, and indeed in the former case, the first one is going to spark a, a nuclear annihilation, more of annihilation. And the second means that, say, you did land a, uh, 
a large nuclear device on a Ukrainian city. You, with the prevailing winds in Ukraine, uh, the effects on Russia itself would be not quite as bad as what would happen in Ukraine, but certainly there would be something they would very much not wish to have to deal with. So we're talking about battlefield nukes, tactical nukes, call them what you will. I suppose uh, nuclear artillery or cruise missiles armed with a nuclear warhead. There's plenty of those around. The Russians have got hundreds of them. Uh, as indeed have we. Uh, we've got uh, the same sort of kit. Um, they're not quite as terrifying as they sound uh, because <laughs> the uh, fallout, the, yield, the fallout yield is actually much, much smaller than, say, uh, when uh, nuclear weapons were first invented. Uh, so you can have a cruise missile with a sort of 10 megaton capacity, megaton meaning it's uh, the equivalent of a thousand tons of old-fashioned TNT. There's not, you know much more about this than I do, Saul, I think, but the, the actual military effectiveness of them is not really um, proven, is it? Or it's not really obvious? Uh, no, for obvious reasons, because uh, they haven't been used and they can't be used, because as soon as you use even a tactical nuclear weapon, you set on the path of, of, of escalation. Uh, Putin knows perfectly well that this is a red line he can't cross uh, with NATO. It will immediately bring NATO into the war against Russia. Uh, and that is a war that Russia, indeed, neither side can win. So I'm pretty sanguine about these nuclear threats. You, you can't even go there. You would need uh, Putin to be absolutely at the end of his tether, a sort of uh, Hitler-like scenario at uh, the end of the Second World War. And you would also need other key people in the chain of command, um, that is the defense minister and the chief of the general staff, to also go along with the madness of attempting to use even a single tactical nuclear weapon. So, no, I don't see it as, uh, as there's any possibility that Russia will do that uh, if all three of those people at the same time uh, decide that, you know, Russia's existence is of no relevance. And, and frankly, that isn't going to happen. So I'm not particularly concerned. And another little indication that uh, Russia is very unlikely to escalate this is the fact that it hasn't used chemical weapons. Now, it's done it before, of course, in places like Syria uh, uh, and also in Grozny, but it is not going to do it in Ukraine because it knows the response of NATO reacting kind. And it will bring, not that NATO is suddenly going to use nuclear weapons or chemical weapons itself, but it will bring NATO into the war, which is what it's trying to avoid. And when I say into the war, I mean its planes, its men and everything else. So that is a scenario uh, Russia cannot stomach or, or consider. And that's why I don't think it, it's ever going to happen. On the other hand, Saul, that is one way for Putin, if he really is cornered. It's a scenario for getting out of his difficulties. Then you back, are back into World War II. All his uh, propaganda about this is really a surrogate war fought by the Western NATO against us then becomes a reality. The people who are now objecting to going off and fighting a, a, a war of which they're not really convinced is worth fighting uh, will be defending Mother Russia. And so I think it's probably a, a scenario that must have occurred to him uh, that's why I'm afraid I'm less sanguine than you about the unlikelihood of him taking that step. Well, we'll have to, uh, as we have done sometimes on this podcast, uh, Patrick, agree to disagree. It's a, it's a sign of desperation in my view. It's a threat he can never uh, actually go down the line and actually carry out. And there are other possibilities, of course, which we should remember. I mean, history will tell us that uh, other dictators have made very bad decisions. Uh, they've come to regret them. 
I'm co- talking, of course, about Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. Uh, he was thrown out of Kuwait, uh, just like we hope Russia will be thrown out of uh, Ukraine. Uh, and he still survived as dictator. So the assumption Putin's uh, inevitably going to be toppled by losing this war uh, is not something I, you know, I, I think is absolutely inevitable. It, it, may be, it may be possible, it may be likely, but I don't think it's inevitable. So you could imagine a scenario where he withdraws back to Russia, licks his wounds, blames the defeat on NATO and carries on. Uh, it doesn't need to lead to uh, the destruction of parts of Russia uh, and, of course, the rest of the world too. Nonetheless, I believe that uh, government should take this threat seriously. And the sensible thing to do in the coming uh, days and weeks is, I think, for us to reach out and engage with the two powers that maybe will be able to get Putin's ear and, and get him to, to think again, notably, of course, China. Now, I think China's new, uh, more reserved attitude towards Moscow is a hopeful sign. Uh, if he's going to listen to anyone, if there's anyone he has to listen to, it really is China. So I think a sensible policy would be to try and get China very much on board, reach out to them and say, look, we're all, this is a global problem. Uh, let's, let's stop the uh, ideology and, and the kind of divisive uh, rhetoric and diplomacy of, of recent years and, and pull together on this one. It'd be good for China because it would actually, if they can broker some sort of peace, it would put them in a very good uh, position thereafter. We would owe them big time. And let's hope that uh, moves are made along those lines in, in the coming days and weeks. I'm not sure we particularly want to be beholden to China, but I, I take your broader point, um, Patrick. Uh, absolutely right. This needs to be calm down. But we are in a difficult situation in terms of finding a negotiated peace because Ukraine is quite understandably emboldened in terms of its determination to reclaim most, if not all, of its territory. And I suggest it was closer to all now, and I include Crimea in that. And that might be a position that Putin finds uh, unacceptable. Um, How many more defeats he needs on the battlefield to bring him around to that point of view is another matter. But but I agree with you, of course, in the longer term, there has to be a settlement. Uh, Russia has to be brought back into the international fold, although it may take many years. As we heard from uh, previous commentators on this podcast, uh, Russia could be and probably will be a pariah for many years. And of course, given that it has nuclear weapons, that does make it dangerous. So the sooner uh, we get to a situation where Ukraine is happy with what it's got and feels secure in the future, and that probably means uh, membership of NATO, well, almost certainly means membership of NATO, uh, and Russia is somehow got to a point where it can accept the settlement, uh, then the happier, of course, the the international community will be. But that is a a thorny, tricky road that all of us are going to have to tread very delicately on to achieve. We ought to remember that the changeover from communism, the collapse of the old system, which had sustained Russia for most of the the, uh, 20th century to date, that came to pass almost bloodlessly, which was miraculous. Uh, if there was regime change in the current circumstances, are we sure that this wouldn't just mean a descent into chaos of the sort that we largely avoided when communism fell? Well, that's probably one for another time. Yes. I mean, my my suggestion that uh, Putin might survive this, uh, uh, of course, is one scenario. But uh, probably best case scenario, if we if we had a wish list now, Patrick, is that he is toppled by 
slightly more moderate elements. Now, whether that's likely or not, you've already talked about the, you know, the warmongers, the, the far right, who, of course, are, are inevitably quite powerful in the security forces. Um, what we'd like to see is a slightly more moderate government that could distance itself from what Putin has done and say, OK, the war was wrong. We are prepared to hand over a few people for war crimes. We are pe- prepared possibly even to make some uh, uh, financial reparations and let's reset and start again. That's the best case scenario. Whether that's likely or not is another matter. But um, uh, we will see what is likely to unfold in, in the next few weeks in particular. But one thing I'm very clear about, Patrick, you cannot bow to this type of nuclear blackmail. The West, as I've already said, uh, needs to stand fast and keep up the same level, if not increase its military support for Ukraine. Here, here. Now, um, we like to uh, throw a bit of good news into the mix in each show. So uh, I was uh, very interested in the story last week about the Russia Russian hop shortage, uh, which uh, meant that Russian brewers were having to cast around to find alternative supplies because they can't get their hops from Germany, which is where they mainly came from before. Now, I read that Russian businessman Sergei Baranov of the Kamelikov Brewing Company has told Reuters that they have indeed found a new source inside Russia from the Chuvash area, about 400 miles east of Moscow. That's good news for Russian beer drinkers because uh, I remembered after we were talking about it last week that I had in fact tasted beer brewed without hops, and that was in Sarajevo in 1994. The city was under siege then, you'll remember, but the town brewery, the Sarajevska Pivara, kept going, and they were rightly proud of their achievement and indeed held a party on the premises uh, to celebrate the 130th anniversary of their foundation. They therefore proved that despite all the Serbian shelling and sniping, all the difficulties they faced, they were still capable of organising a piss-up in a brewery. <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom. Um, great but stuff. The beer, the beer, it has to be said, the beer was pretty revolting, even though naturally we still managed to drink quite a lot of it. Yeah, it reminds me of the sort of alcohol we used to make at school. Uh, you didn't really care what it tasted like, just as long as it uh, made you feel fuzzy and you forgot your travails just for a moment. <laughs> um, great stuff, Patrick. Okay, uh, a momentous week. Uh, we've had a momentous couple of weeks. We'll, we'll see what unfolds uh, during the next seven days. But please join us uh, in a week's time for the next episode when we're going to hear from uh, the legendary war correspondent, Anthony Lloyd, and discuss the latest developments. Goodbye.